Last we were together, we studied the account, one of the most famous accounts in the Bible, and that is the great standoff between David and the giant Goliath. And we saw David, the great, great man of faith, even though he was a young man, quite possibly even a young boy, as the text might be interpreted. And as we studied it, we saw that the Lord not only gave him the strength of faith, but gave him the fruit of his conviction. And that, with a simple sling and with a stone, the great Philistine champion was put to death. And the people of Israel were in every way vindicated in their faith in God, but also delivered from the hand of their oppressor. And so we'll pick up at 1 Samuel chapter 18. We'll study verses 1 through 5. Finally, uh, we'll study not an entire chapter or even three quarters of one, just a small piece, and consider the character of godly friendship. Hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. The word of the Lord. May the God of heaven bless it and give us mercy. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we've heard the scriptures. Oh, Lord, this wonderful example of the love of Jonathan for David, this endearing and wonderful friendship, O Lord. We pray that you would give us, in every way, a heart to learn from this example. O Lord, help us to examine our own hearts, our own friendships. O Lord, that we might be challenged to do better. O Lord, to have friendships that are meaningful. O Lord, ones that spiritually challenge us and comfort us. Oh, Lord, that you might be glorified and that we might be blessed. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, there's a very widespread epidemic that affects both men and women. And it's not just in American culture. It's also not alienated from European and German culture. It's something that touches everybody in the modern age. And it is the epidemic even within the church, of friendlessness. Again and again and again amongst men and women, I hear, I am desperately lonely. I feel like I don't have any friends. I'm longing for meaningful camaraderie. And friends, I just want to say, this is also not a thing that's, you know, a few isolated circumstances. No, this is symptomatic of the age in which we live. Ultimately, I want to say to you, People like us who experience a world that has cast off real and meaningful social relationships for something that we call social media, we have become a people too busy to be inconvenienced 
with meaningful, deep, and intimate relationships that show forth a heart to God and a heart to his people. Now, you and I, I think, if any of you are like me, can say that in our lives we do know what friendship is like. Whenever we were little boys, little girls, friendships came easily. And one of the things that I've noticed, and I'm sometimes just astounded at, is there's seemingly nowhere I've ever been on the earth with my kids where they can't find friends. Even whenever there is the wall of linguistic uh, discontinuity between them. I, I watched one time Haddon playing with two Czech children that seemingly didn't know a single word of English and Haddon knew absolutely no words of Czech. So it's a wonderful thing, children experience. But what happens, at least I think what is currently happening, is that while some of those young friendships have been made quick and easily and are maintained sincerely, that whenever we progress into high school, a handful of those remain... And if you're very blessed, a few more into university, but inevitably in the busyness of life, in the strenuousness of workplace and career, in the regular responsibility of the family, little by little, those friendships grow cold and are stripped away by a variety of different issues. And while it's true that people lose friendships, they don't lose the need for them. And there is a huge gap, a gaping hole in the hearts and in the souls of people that simply long for closeness with a person that is on the ground and basis of friendship. Something that I find even a little bit more disturbing is it's not only friends in a casual sense or in an informal sense, like friends outside of your family, but I think a thing that I'm seeing even within the church is that brothers are not minding relationship with the brother that grew up in their household, sister with a sister, or sister with brother, or brother with sister. And so this is a huge issue, and it is something that we as Christians need to be aware of in our own hearts. And, as is always appropriate, we ought to look to the Word of God for instruction in how this might be remedied. And so tonight I want to study the character of godly friendship with four points from the text of Scripture. I do want to mention some of the passage of Scripture that we have this evening refers to Saul. Our uh, focus is not going to be primarily on David's relationship to Saul. The whole of the coming two chapters are going to be focused on Saul, his envious heart, his struggle with David. But tonight we're going to focus on Jonathan and on David and the godly relationship that they had. And so in verse 1, the first thing I want us to see is that godly friendship is founded on godly character. It is founded on godly character. Also in verse 1, I want us to see, secondly, that godly friendship is nourished by love for one another. It is nourished by love for one another. Then in verse 3, I want us to see that godly friendship is bound by steadfast commitment. It is bound by steadfast commitment. And then in verse 4, godly friendship is sustained by costly generosity. Sustained by costly generosity. 
as we come to this first point that godly friendship is founded on godly character. And we consider the persons and the characters in the book of 1 Samuel. I think if we're honest and have any knowledge of what's going on here in the history of Israel, at least in the contemporary few chapters that bookend this section... David and Jonathan have to be two of the least likely friends, humanly speaking. It's not a thing that stretches our understanding or our biblical and exegetical imaginations, if we're allowed to have that, that whenever Samuel, the prophet, is there rejecting Saul as king as the mouthpiece of the Lord... That likewise, Jonathan was standing near to his father. Jonathan has already been the great champion of Israel. He is the prince, the oldest son, and the obvious successor to the throne of Saul. And yet, nonetheless, he's heard that his father will be rejected and that the Lord will do what? Raise up another in his place, a man after God's own heart. Now, it's not entirely clear whether or not anybody else is aware of the anointing of David by Samuel. There seems to be, at least in Jesse's response, whenever he sends David to Saul, some concern that that might be public knowledge, as he then sends some offerings directly to the king. That's a little bit of a guess on the part of biblical readers and scholars, but nonetheless, it's still uncertain. But here you have this young champion, another man, a mighty man, in the court of Saul, this David, a man who is a whole lot like Jonathan and who has done a magnificent thing. And in the heart of a sinful man, it's not too much to think that on the grounds of popularity, the jealous heart of Jonathan might well raise against David. Or on the grounds of his relationship to his father and the succession of the kingdom of Israel, that there might be at least some concern that this interloper, this outsider David, is looking to supplant Jonathan on his way to take the crown and the throne of the people of Israel. It's not a wrong thing, as we'll see in the heart of Saul, to think that it is possible that Jonathan could have, you might even say ought to have, considered David as something of an existential threat. And so, why in the world and how do we get what we have in verse 1? Where, after the death of Goliath at the hand of David and David's conversation uh, with Saul... That we read in verse 1, as soon as he, that's David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. That's very, very deep, very, very intimate language. Well, I want to suggest to you that it is because of godly character that Jonathan saw in David and that David had witnessed in Jonathan. And you might say, but pastor, that's not in chapter 18 and you're taking a lot from verse uh, 1 in in this section, but I just want to say, well, let me point you to it because it's got to be framed in the context of 
the whole of the scriptures and particularly in the telling of the narrative of 1 Samuel. In chapter 14, we have the account of Jonathan, the champion of the people of Israel. He goes against the Philistine camp whenever this great multitude with a huge amount of chariots and a huge amount of foot soldiers and a huge amount of men on horseback. And all of Israel is cowering across the valley. And nonetheless, Jonathan with his armor bearer, with a heart of faith for God, goes up against them. And how they then climb the cliff going into the camp and how by the power of God, the whole of the Philistine army was thrown into confusion and uproar and then Israel followed Jonathan as the champion. But it's this one quote that I want to share with you that, betray, that shows the heart and the character of Jonathan. Chapter 14, verse 16. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is only one verse. We have the whole example of the warfare of Jonathan against these people. But nonetheless, this is the testimony of faith. This is what drives him to do what he does. He's not looking for popularity. He's not trying to uphold his princely status. No, no. He's a man with faith in God who is content to serve when all the odds seem to be against him. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Our God can do anything he wants. He can even use two humble Israelite men to come against a great multitude. The godly character of Jonathan. But then, of course, we see the godly character of David. These two men almost like mirror images one of the other or two halves of the same man. David, if you look back at chapter 17, verse 37, we have, before David goes and approaches Goliath, him tell this to a fearful king Saul, who basically says, you're just a boy. He's been a warrior since his childhood. Who are you, David? David's testimony is this. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What is it between these two men except the character of faith in God that would commend them one to another? You see, that's the ground of this godly friendship. It's not just that Jonathan can do great things and he's a great warrior. Abner undoubtedly is a great warrior. It's his faith in God. Same thing here with David. It's not only that he's a great man and a great man of war. Rather, it's his heart for God. It's faith that draws him one to another. And so it's a right thing to understand that men can be drawn into brotherly friendship most sincerely on the grounds of their shared character of faith in God. And friends, I want to back away from this and simply say to you, Christians, also specifically to you, men, if you're lonely for fellowship and you're a member of this church, you have no excuse. This church has proven itself to be a church filled with godly men in love with Christ. Look around yourself and I promise you, 
Not only will you see some examples, you'll see very many examples of men who love the Lord, with whom you as a man of God hold everything in wonderful continuity and in good fellowship with. You ought to have good friends, and your friends ought to be derived from the church. Now, this is also something uh, that needs to be looked at. And, you know, what are we saying here? That good friendship, godly friendship begins with shared faith. Sometimes as Christians, we can be caught in the act of saying, well, some of my best friends are actually people that aren't in the church that aren't even Christians. And I say to the brother or sister that finds themselves in that circumstance, oh, how much better you can have. How much better you can have. It is one and a good thing to be friendly and to have dear friends outside of the church. It's part of your testimony to the world. To show forth a heart for God in the love and in the care even of unbelieving people. But amongst Christians, you have the opportunity to have friendships that are understood at a level even deeper than flesh and blood. So, how can Jonathan... Be a friend with David, with their hearts and souls knit together by love. It's because it began with their hearts knit together with their God. God's their meeting point. God is the foundation of a godly relationship. Also in verse 1, we go on and we come to this second point and characteristic of a godly relationship or friendship. And that is that godly friendship is nourished by love for one another. Godly friendship is nourished by love for one another. As we read the text of Scripture, we read this language that Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And whenever you read modern commentators or people who write articles on the internet, they go all sorts of different places with this sort of language. And friends, I want to tell you that that is absolutely silly. And it is absolutely shallow whenever it comes to the emotional range that God created us to have. You don't have to go in a bad place with this. It's something that we need to fight very hard against all the media that we take in and the culture of this world is that there is more than one dimension to love. Love is more than romance. There is room for bromance, if I may put that to you. A real brotherly love that is bound up in sincerity. There's room for that. And it ought to be expected And we ought to also see that this reality, this thing that oftentimes we as modern people want to simply say, a friendship is good, we like each other, but I would dare not ever hang up the phone with, I love you. That's reserved for my wife, my husband. That's reserved maybe for my mama, occasionally for my kids whenever they behave. But I'm not going to say that to another man or another woman. And I want to say that you're missing out. You're missing out on the depth of what friendship ought to be. On the great depth and the very piercing nature of real friendship. Meaningful, lasting, soul-nourishing friendship that it must be nourished on love 
for one another. So let's look at verse 1 again. The soul of Jonathan was knit or sewed together or connected to the soul of David. Very few texts of Scripture give you intimate language, gives you intimate language, anything like this. They are soulmates in this passage of Scripture. They are so deeply united by love for one another that nothing can possibly pull them apart. Their admiration of one another, it's not passing. It's not just, well, a coworker that's done well or a guy who's not offensive or somebody that shares my common interest in this or that football or sports team or hobby. No, it's so much more than that. So much more deep than that. It's all the way to the soul. And something that I want to make a point of is that if you're going to have this kind of friendship, this kind of love that touches the soul, then it needs to be with a Christian brother or with a Christian sister. Because the living soul of a child of God really has almost nothing in common with the dead soul of an unbelieving person on this earth. And so again, we back up and ask the question, how can this love be? What is the depth and how can this actually be held in the heart of a man to another man or a woman to another woman in a right way? Well, again, it's wrapped around a soul given to God. Faith cannot be pulled out of the picture. Whenever I was reading this and studying and preparing, I I just keep thinking of, of the friends that I have. And uh, I've got lots of friends. God's really blessed me. I've got friends and mentors well beyond any of the riches I could have ever imagined. Uh, friends I shouldn't have. Mentors I should not have. Uh, but I, I thought very specifically to the week that I just had uh, with my brothers and specifically with my close, close friend, one of my very closest, Sean Morris. You guys have gotten to meet him and hear him preach and him be involved in some of the big moments of our church. And I just thought, you know, whenever I was with him and his family, his kids, same ages as my kids, uh, he and I in the same class in seminary, um, his kids calling me uncle. He's not my blood brother, but he is certainly my soul brother, as it were. Um, it's love that has sustained our relationship and nourished it for this long. And it's love for Christ, and it's love knowing what God has done in him and is doing through him. And I'm very certain that likewise that is returned to me as we invite one another into our pulpits and entrust the souls of God's people put under our charge to one another on occasion. And as we left from the airport and he dropped me off the curb, there was this real and true thing expressed as we hugged. Brother, I love you and I can't wait to see you again. Friends, I want that for you, Christian. I want that for you, brother and sister. I want you to know what it is to have a good, healthy, loving relationship that doesn't withdraw or retract or conceal the depths of your soul to another person who can love you enough to tell you the hard thing, love you enough to comfort you, love you when you're not very lovely, and also 
pray for you regularly. It's not just something that you know you want. I want to tell you, friend, it's something you need. You need it. You see, this relationship that David has with Jonathan, it bookends chapters 18 through 20. And all in the middle, it's as if Samuel is telling us, uh, the only way that David got through the wrath and the envy and the attacks of Saul was the love of Jonathan, his friend, his dear spiritual friend. And so I just want to encourage you Christians, don't withhold your heart from allowing a friend to get love and also don't be content with not having love returned to you from a friend, especially one who is in Christ. I think of Proverbs, whenever we look at this and describe this uh, idea, uh, Proverbs 18 verse 24 a man, may, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's a loving relationship. And you might say, well, Pastor, that's a really good Old Testament idea and model, but how does it really come into the new? Well, I just think of Christ. His friends who he died for, the ones closest to him, his disciples and apostles, John 13, 35. What does Jesus say to these other men? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. So as we leave this point, I just simply want to say, don't be content to simply be church members together in this church. People that show up in the same place and sit in the same room while the same guy flaps his mouth for an hour each week. No, don't let that be. Also, don't be content with a theoretical idea that, yes, I love my church. Give yourself to true, intimate, spiritual, loving relationships here within the body of Christ because it is very truly a testimony to the watching world that if we love one another, we will be known to be his disciples. In verse 3, we continue on and we see that godly friendships are bound by steadfast commitments. Godly friendships are bound by steadfast commitments. We read that then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. He made a covenant. Now you've heard me talk about covenants quite often and you've heard me talk about this unique way that we as a church covenant and it's by holy promises. Some people might call them vows and so I want to encourage you to understand what's going on here. Probably could be, we don't have the textual evidence, but probably isn't like a covenantal ceremony like you see between Abraham and God where you've got split animals. This textbook covenanting where you have curses uh, and you have promises and all of that formality. Rather, this covenanting is more than likely godly spiritual promises. It's like vows. 
like a husband would take to a wife, like a, a church member would take to the church, uh, like parents and the church would take to baptized children or to new believers to see them raised up in the love and the admonition of the word of God. And really at the bottom of this, these promises, these vows, this covenanting that David and uh, Jonathan are having between themselves, it really is just commitment. I mean, that's what a promise is. It's a statement of commitment, a thing uh, that you are committed to see through, a thing uh, that you um, by yourself hath sworn uh, to see fulfilled, to use the language even of the promises of God. And I just want to say this very clearly uh, and let it echo in our ears that real friendship requires commitment. And friends, I'm concerned that today the reason why so many friendships fall apart is that commitment is not a thing we're usually willing to take up. And so what happens? A friendship that was once wonderful, the good old days where we enjoyed this person or that person regularly in our lives, those friendships, they grow cold. They get distant. I mean, sometimes the commitment is broken and friendships are betrayed. That's a little different. And I think, well, that is certainly some people, they've experienced that. But I would say the vast majority of cold, long forgotten, kind of dead friendships today are by not keeping the commitments, the serious promises of faithful friendships. And why do I think that that's the case? Well, it's because you and I live in a world that gives us every excuse not to be involved with one another. We get too convenient in our relationships. Well, they revolve around conveniences. We can conveniently take them up and we can put them down and there's really no harm. There's really no foul. And even we've confused and tricked ourselves into thinking that we've not lost anything. Well, I used to be with this person and it used to be a friendship. We once were friends. We've sort of grown apart. He's gone his way. I've gone my way. There's no big deal. Really, was it ever any kind of meaningful friendship? You see, the thing that we're seeing in the scriptures is so much deeper. It's, it's soul level and it's heart gripping. And so... It is something that needs to be bound by commitment. If you've got this kind of love and you've got this kind of relationship, to rip that away would be like ripping a part of your heart completely out of your own chest. And it'd leave you bleeding and dysfunctional and hurting. And so a godly friendship needs to be kept jealously guarded and pursued. But that's going to take something, isn't it? I think it does. Anything that we're committed to, it's going to require some element of self-denial. It's going to say, well, I need to be committed to this. I need to be uh, committed to that person's well-being. I need to be committed to know if he or she is well today. I, want, I need to be committed to their spiritual good. I need to be committed uh, to their financial good. I need to be committed to their daily care. It's the sort of commitment that is not all too distant uh, from a man who has a dog that he loves. That dog needs to be fed and walked and fellowshiped with and cared for daily. Friendships are not all 
that different, and there's really no accident that dogs are called man's best friends and not cats. So, at some point, the illustration breaks down. But commitment. Commitment. Committed relationships. I mean, what do we see? We see even in the marital relationship, we see that breaking down. The struggle for faithfulness and monogamy amongst man and wife. And likewise, we in our own hearts, at certain points in our lives, can be, well, ultimately unfaithful with scattered attentions to the expense of the other person, the person that we have proclaimed to love and who yet we are not caring for. And I want to encourage us and call us to it, church, brother and sister, to make good commitments, to see value in the relationships that you make and in the friendships that you would like to see. You're going to have to put something into it if you ever hope to get anything out of it. I think relatedly, in verse 4, We see a fourth character of godly friendship. That godly friendship is sustained by costly generosity. It is sustained by costly generosity. In verse 4 we see Jonathan doing what? Well, it's kind of a strange thing, maybe. We read that Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David. This isn't just any sort of robe. This is the robe of a prince. Okay, This is an evidence of his having a place in the household of the kingship of Israel. It identifies him as a successor. He takes it off of himself, and he does what? He gives it to David, wrapping it around him. Not only does he have just this gesture, no, he takes his armor off, And he gives it to him, this shepherd boy, the son of Jesse, a young man who, well, knows something of tattered and dirty tunics and dusty sandals. Well, now he has the armor of a prince of the house of Israel. He gives him his sword so that no longer does he simply have the sling and the stone of a shepherd. Rather, he has the sword of a prince and a king. He gives him his bow and also his his belt. These are costly things. You and I might not think of it too much. I mean, after all, we are wildly wealthy as modern people. How many jackets do you have at your home? Probably two or three. And they're in usually some variety of shape. Some of you might say, well, I have jackets that I've never even worn, if you're anything like some of the members of my household. Um, You might think, well, what is it just to give these sort of things? A belt, that's no big deal. A bow, well, that could be pricey. A sword, that could be more expensive. And a piece of armor, well, that, you know, that's that that does sound kind of costly. And so we're faced with the greatness of this gift. But one of the things that I want to encourage you is, is simply to understand this as the generosity of friendship that gives freely for the betterment and the establishment of a friend. I mean, what is Jonathan doing? He's preparing David to be part of the court of Saul. After all, we did read that Saul was going to take David into his court and disallow him to leave from his sight and go to the household of Jesse. David needed some things. This dusty, dirty shepherd boy with the blood of a giant on his hands, well, he's got he's to shape up. 
He's got to be a man prepared for the court. Not only that, we read that he was a man put in charge of the armies of Saul, of the forces of mighty men. He's got to have armor. He's got to fight some more battles. He's got to have a sword, and he needs a bow, and he needs a belt to hold it all together. And the friendship in the heart of Jonathan simply says that David is worth the best that he has to give. He's worth it. Not only that, he sees that David needs what he has, and so he gives everything. I mean, think of it. What else could Jonathan reasonably be wearing but tunic and sandals at this point? He's not naked, but he's certainly stripped down from the ornaments of his office. But here's the thing that underlies, I think, all of the costly generosity of true godly friendship is that Jonathan believes that David himself is more valuable than all of those rich goods. David's the treasure. It's not the, it's not the adornment of his office as prince. David is valuable. His well-being is worth it. David is worthy of all of these things. And so he loves him and he gives generously to him. You see, real friendships are going to be costly. They're going to be not only relationships that demand of you something, they're going to be relationships that you ought to expect will be overflowing with gifts in both directions. And what am I instructing? Am I saying, all right, men, you better go out and find a good fishing rod and give it to the guy in the church that you want to be friends with? That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the things that necessarily need to be in place for a sustained friendship, those things are going to cost you time. cost you time that you could otherwise be doing something you're interested in, that your friend isn't. It's going to cost you time with your family. It might cost you time that would otherwise be given to vacation. It's going to cost you time. And I think that's one of the most valuable thing, if not the most valuable thing, that any of us have. It's going to be costly in that way. It could be costly financially. If you've got friends that don't live in Germany like I do, it might cost you several round-trip airfares to be in their life and for them to be in your life and to have a more meaningful relationship than just at the other end of a Skype call. It could be costly it could be costly whenever you know that their friend is overwhelmed with grief at the loss of a loved one and you know I've got to take three days off of work. I'm not going to get paid for those, but my friend is hurting. His heart is open and bleeding and I'm going to go to him. I'm going to go to her and I'm going to do everything at my own expense to be there to be the lifter of their head and to tell them the truth of the gospel. Friendships are costly and they're going to require of you generosity. It's going to cost you time, treasure, emotion, attention, and affection. I want to back up, and I want to look at the thing that I said in the introduction about this epidemic amongst men, amongst women, outside the church, and within the church. What does it take? Well, it takes things that the world cannot possibly provide 
It takes godly character, love for one another, steadfast commitment, and costly generosity. Those are alien to the world that you and I live in. They're antithetical to the quick, cheap thrills of taking without giving. And you and I ought to all be confronted to examine what we call friendships and to make correctives. And we ought to follow in the footsteps of this wonderful father in the faith, both Jonathan and also David. Moreover, we ought to follow in the footsteps of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We've got to follow in the footsteps of Christ and realize that a good, a real, a meaningful, godly friendship has every possibility and is entirely worth even the giving of your life for your friend. And so friends, church, I want to call you to that. To look on this example... To not be content with less. To know that you need more and to know that your friends are worth it. And to give yourself into godly friendships so that you can say that you have a band of brothers, you have a band of sisters that stick even closer than family. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures, Lord, how they consistently teach us about your character and what you would have for us in our lives. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us godly friendships. Oh Lord, that our church would be bound together in Christ. Oh Lord, that our confession of faith might be for every one of us the ground upon which we build lives together, lives of love and lives of friendship. Oh Father, we pray for our church. May it never be said of the saints that they are truly a lonely and friendless people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.